Now, you probably, if you're listening to this message, you probably overhear these triune introductions by the Elastic Marine back there in the troll booth. And incidentally, he has a birthday coming up on September 29th. And he keeps urging me and sending me notes and texting me about, could you announce that so the church will know, so I can get presents and maybe even monetary gifts. And uh, I have to keep answering. I can't do that, Em, because then, you know, all the veterans in our church from the Air Force and the Coast Guard and the Army and Navy are going to get upset and there'll be fistfights in church. And so I can't do it. <clears throat> can't mention that your birthday's September 29th. Now, you're probably wondering why I did that to open the message today. Well, I told a little lie, or maybe a half-truth. It is his birthday, but he's not been begging me to announce it. So I told a half-truth, and a half-truth is something that God is incapable of. In fact, God is incapable of a lie. He has what we call absolute veracity as the God of truth. And the next increment or two increments, one of them happens to fall on the 26th, another on the 29th, is about the immutability of God and his unchangeable purpose in love. And so today's message will be entitled pretty generally, The Immutability I-M-M-U-T-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y, the immutability of God's purpose. This is something God wants us to know in the time in which we live right now in your heart. That's what he wants you to know, the immutability of God's purpose. And it's found in a couple places today that we're going to look at. First, our text, Hebrews chapter 6 starting at verse 16, and then we're going to look at two passages from Isaiah, more specifically Deutero-Isaiah, which is called the second Isaiah from Isaiah 40 to 55. There's a separate prophetic book, and it's a very special revelational book in the Old Testament, and it comes like a freight train into the New Testament like no other passage, and we're going to be taking two Increments or two passages from Isaiah 45, 17, and Isaiah 46, 10. But first, prayer. Father, we thank you today that you care for us with an indescribable kind of love. And with that love, you desire to convey to us the certainty of your saving purpose in Christ. That that purpose is eternal that purpose is unchangeable, and that that purpose is universal. And may we allow your Holy Spirit to rivet that hope deep into our beings and cause it to overflow so that it may be conveyed to others in this world who are without hope and at the present time without God and without the promise of the Messiah in this world. And so we thank you for this privilege. Consequently, we entrust our spirit to you for the perception of your word. We present 
and commit our souls to you, our faithful creator. And we present our bodies to you for your service in this world. And so that you may magnify your son, Jesus Christ, in our bodies. And we ask this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6, and verse 16 and 17. This is the translation I've developed so far from the Greek text. Now men customarily swear oaths <clears throat> by something greater than themselves. And for them, the oath for confirmation is the end of all contradiction. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose, and that's where we have our key word for this increment, increment 164, and for the next increment, the key word is amatathaton. I'll just put it in caps here in the English transliteration. Amatathaton. And amatathaton means unchangeable, immutable, unalterable, and so absolutely certain. And so when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose, and you'll see this in print when you get the printed version of this, to amatathaton tes bules autu, the unchangeability of his purpose, his intention. And this is very personal because it says when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he interposed with an oath. Think of God wanting very much to make more clear to us the heirs of his promise than we have had it made to us before. More clear to us than ever the unchangeable purpose and intention that he has toward us. In human terms, we would say, it means an awful lot to God that you would be perfectly assured of his saving purpose and that the purpose is universal. The purpose was bought by blood and accomplished in the death of his son. Now that which, and I've said this before, and I want to emphasize it because it's giving a new kind of character to our own commentary on Hebrews. That which sets our commentary of Hebrews apart from others, at least others that I've read, is that ours emphasizes the sure hope of a cosmic redemption and a universal and eternal salvation accomplished by God's unrestricted love and made possible by the solidarity of Jesus, God's Son, with all of humanity in the wider context of all of creation and all of time and all of history. In our last increment, we expounded a little on a number of A words, words that begin with the Greek letter Alpha from the New Testament, all of whom or all of which point to a universal restoration. We close that study with reference to amatathaton, a key word in the last paragraph of Hebrews 6. It's used twice. Amatathaton is an essential attribute of God's intention to gather up all things in his son. We know this not just from Hebrews, but by a comparison of Hebrews 6 
17 and 18 with Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, for example, that we'll take a look at, and Isaiah 45, 23, and elsewhere, Isaiah 46, 10, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, and a whole host of other places. And so we know that amatathaton is an essential attribute of God's intention to gather up everything in the heavens and on earth in his son. This intention or this purpose is immutable, unalterable, absolutely unchangeable. Consequently, we can bank on it, depend on it totally, rest our souls on it. We can have absolute confidence that it will come to pass. Amatathaton then adds significantly to the Christian doctrine of anakephaliosis pantone, which is, again, a big word, but Paul uses a lot of big words, and it means the recapitulation of everything in God's Christ in Ephesians 1.10. So amatathaton adds significantly to that doctrine by stressing the immutable certainty of the recapitulation of all things over the course of all time in Jesus Christ. And this kind of certainty happens to be emphasized not by human but by divine oaths. These are divine oaths by which God puts exclamation marks at the end of his promises. And most solemnly I say, he signs these promises with his name in blood. Similar stress is placed on the certainty of God's purpose in such passages as I've said before, Deutero Isaiah, namely Isaiah 45, 17 to 25. It's a section I wanna look at really quickly now because it correlates splendidly with our passage in Hebrews 6, 16 through 18. Then we'll look at 46.10. I happened to have stumble upon this one as I was looking at Bible Hub, and I happened to see one of the commentaries there. It's called the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, and it's a pretty old commentary, and one of the commentators on Isaiah was named John Skinner, and he was born in like 1851, so it's a pretty old statement. But on Isaiah 45, and again, I kind of stumbled over this. I didn't even really go for this, but saw it kind of out of the corner of my eye. But he wrote this. The long passage on the mission of Cyrus closes here with the announcement of a salvation as universal as it is eternal. Now that really hit me. And then he cites Isaiah 45, 17. Who, what commentary have I ever read that somebody says this? None, except this one that I stumbled upon. Then he goes on to say, a purpose of universal salvation is in harmony with the character of the God who made the world for man to dwell in. Isaiah 45, 18. And whose revelation of himself to Israel bears the signature of absolute veracity. Now imagine stumbling on that quote and absolute veracity of God, the fact that he creates all things for man to inhabit, 
universal salvation, eternal salvation, the character of God, all in one short little clip. And so I think it bears repetition, and I'm going to repeat that quote many times, no doubt. Skinner hit on something of an insight that's becoming eminently clear in our study of Hebrews. It's like the Holy Spirit said, look at this guy said, this is what I'm trying to express through you in this heavenly, holy homily called Hebrews. During this time of your dispersion, during this time of unusual two years in which you're doing so much, in which God is doing so much in our nation. Skinner hit on something of an insight that's becoming eminently clear to us in Hebrews. The salvation that God has wrought and that's mediated through Jesus is both eternal and universal. In my young days as a preacher, I emphasized the eternal nature of God's salvation and the assurance of his salvation being eternal. In my latter days as a preacher, in my older years, I've been emphasizing that that same eternal redemption is universal. The hope of eternal life is not just my eternal life. And that's what we want to know when we're very young Christians. We want to know about my eternal life. Is it secure? But the hope of eternal life is not just my eternal life as the gift of God, or is it even our eternal life as the church of God? It is the eternal life for all of creation, which is destined to be comprised of Jesus, the Son of God. That's my hope now. He is the true God and eternal life, says 1 John 5.20. He is the true God and eternal life. So when he comprises everything of himself, everything has that eternal life. Everything is eternized in God's plan. The introductory verses of the pastoral epistles place their stress on this. 1 Timothy 1.1. Listen to what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. 2 Timothy 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God for the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The features we've been emphasizing lately in the anatomy of hope and the meditation on the promises are both there. 1 Timothy 1.1 2 Timothy 1.1 Then Titus 1.1 puts them both together. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that corresponds to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before times of ages or before time as we know it, we could say. Jesus Christ is the hope of eternal life. He is our hope, and he is that life. Jesus Christ is not just the hope that I will have eternal life or that we Christians will have eternal life. Jesus is the hope that all of creation will have that life and be eternized as a new creation and if I were to write a fancy theology book, I'd say eternity is not a frozen immutability, but an ever-living and always unfolding vitality. 
I'll say that again. Eternity is not a frozen immutability, but an ever-living and always unfolding vitality. Now let's consider Isaiah 45, 17 to 25, in connection with this announcement of a salvation as universal as it is eternal. And I can't do an extensive exegesis of it, but we'll do a kind of light one at least. This universal and eternal salvation is as absolutely certain as it is certified by an immutable divine oath. Again, Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 is rightly identified as second Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah. It's a prophetic work in its own right. Its heart and center is the suffering servant of Yahweh, who in a strange and wonderful sense is not only Yahweh's choice and elect servant, but also Yahweh himself. This suffering servant whose distinctive experience of suffering results in the justification of many, Isaiah 53, 11, is none other than Jesus Christ and him crucified of the New Testament. Isaiah 40 to 55 and then 56 to 66 called Trito Isaiah or the third Isaiah come roaring into the station of the New Testament like a speeding train carrying all the freight of the Old Testament with it. This is illustrated dramatically in Jesus' first sermon in Luke 4:18 and following, where he selected Isaiah 61, 1-2 as his text and aroused the wrath of his audience, both by identifying himself as the exclusive anointed one and by the universal inclusivism of his message speaking in it of the salvation coming to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon and to Naaman, a general of the Syrian army. His first audience wasn't too receptive. In fact, they tried to kill him by throwing him into a pit and stoning him to death. So I guess that's an effective sermon. Our message today is a double-edged offense. It offends many by the exclusiveness of Jesus being the only name in whom there is salvation. And it offends many others because of its inclusiveness of all humanity in the salvation that is in Jesus. So consider Isaiah 45, 17 to 25 by first reminding ourselves of Skinner's comment. Bears repetition. The long passage on the mission of Cyrus, speaking of Isaiah 45, closes here with the announcement of a salvation as universal as it is eternal. A purpose of universal salvation is in harmony with the character of the God who made the world for man to dwell in. That, of course, refers to future world. And whose revelation of himself to Israel bears the signature of absolute veracity. So here's Isaiah 45, 17 to 25, and my translation from the Greek text, the Septuagint, with a few bracketed comments. You'll see all these in the printed version. Israel is being saved by the Lord, says the prophet, with an everlasting salvation. The word is soterion, aeonion, the same phrase used in Hebrews 5.9. And it reminds us of Hebrews 11, or Romans 11.26, where all Israel will be saved in connection with Romans 11.32. God will show mercy to all 
Israel and the nations. He goes on to say in Isaiah 45, 17, they will not be ashamed, nor will they be disgraced forever. Thus says the Lord in verse 18, who made heaven, who is God, who showed the earth and made it. First he showed the angels the plan for earth, the blueprint, then he made it. He's the architect and the builder of all things. So thus says the Lord who made heaven, and whenever you see heaven in connection with earth, you have to remember that God's immutable purpose is to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth and recapitulate them under the headship of his son and comprise them of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, 45.18 says, Thus says the the Lord who made heaven, who is God who showed the earth and made it, who set its limits, who did not make it in vain, but to be inhabited. He's speaking here ultimately of the inhabited world, of future world in Hebrews 2.5. I am, he says, and there is no other. I haven't spoken in secret, God says in verse 19, nor in a dark place of the earth. He's speaking of the idols and things like the Delphic Oracle that come from underground and from caves in the earth where the priests mumble and hear these little prophecies of demons. He says, I haven't spoken in secret nor in a dark place of the earth. I never said to the seed of Jacob, seek what is empty and vain. That's idolatry. I am. I am. He says it twice there. I am. I am the Lord. Speaking righteousness, that means communicating salvation, by the way, and openly proclaiming truth. The word aletheia here means that which is not to be hidden. The very word truth, aletheia, in the Greek means that which is not to be hidden. I speak righteousness and openly proclaim truth. Then he says in verse 20, assemble together and come and deliberate together, you who are being saved from the nations. They have no knowledge who lift up the wood of a graven image. They lift up and hold up wooden images of their gods. And this is contrasted very subtly with the wood of the cross that was lifted up on Calvary with Yahweh being crucified. And that subtle distinction is in this verse, and you don't get that from a commentary. You get that from the spirit of truth. But So verse 20, assemble together and come and deliberate together, you who are being saved from the nations. They, that means the pagan nations, have no knowledge who lift up the wood of a graven image and pray to gods who cannot save. If they will proclaim it, let them come near so that they may know together who made these things to be heard from the beginning. Then it was told you, I am God and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other righteous one and Savior except me. This is the same as Peter saying, there is no salvation in any other name but the name Jesus. Verse 22, this is where we're getting closer to the heart of the matter. 
Isaiah 45:22 Be turned to me and be saved you who are from the end of the earth this is universal salvation the end of the earth not just Israel but all the nations those who don't know him I am God and there is no other now here in verse 23 Isaiah 45:23 This verse comes into the New Testament in Philippians 2:9 through 11, Romans 14:11, and in many other passages. And it's hinted at in passages in Hebrews also like 2:9. Look at verse 23 when you study this passage. He says I swear by myself I have taken an oath. Oaths are the subject of Hebrews chapter 6 verses 16 to 18. God's oath. He fortifies a promise with an oath because he wants to make all the more clear and sure to you the immutability of his purpose. It means a lot to him to do that. It means a lot to God that you would be an assured person that you would have hope as an anchor for your soul in a sea of historical troubles. It's his will. Think of how much he loves us. By myself I have taken an oath. And this reminds us of Genesis 22:16, the promise spoken of in Hebrews 6:13 and 14 to Abraham. God didn't just say blessing I will bless you multiplying I will multiply you giving you an innumerable seed He said I swear by myself that blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you and all the nations will be blessed in your seed and we know that his seed is Christ So speaking of oaths look there's one right here by myself I have taken an oath Righteousness will go forth from my mouth my words will not turn away that to me every knee will bend and every tongue will acknowledge God saying of me righteousness and glory will be attributed to him and all who separate themselves will be ashamed when Jesus appears and every eye sees him even those that pierced him two things will happen one the faith of those who believed will be approved gloriously two the unbelief of those who didn't believe will be reproved but it will instantly yield to faith and belief and by that we will all come all of humanity in all of its times come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the son of god what a glorious moment And then in verse 25 of Isaiah by the Lord they will be justified and all the seed of the sons of Israel will be glorified in God. Where did Paul get the idea that in Romans 8:30 as many as God justified those he also glorified? Right from there, Isaiah 45:25. 
As many as God justified, and Paul proves in 5.18 of Romans that he justifies not all of Israel, but all of humankind in Adam. Not all the seed of Abraham, but the seed of Abraham is Christ himself. And with the seed of Abraham, everyone is blessed in that seed, which means it's not just the progeny of Abraham, but all of humanity in Adam justified in Christ and as many as he justified and that's everybody he also glorified in Romans 8:30 now that is God's immutable purpose that's God's universal salvation that's God's eternal salvation and you ought to be sure of it it's not arrogant to be sure of it and bold in your confession of it. In fact, it's a little bit arrogant to be uncertain and timid when God has made it very plain and sure. The immutability of God's purpose is expressed emphatically in another key passage in Deutero-Isaiah. This time, Isaiah 46.10. You know what it says? After 46.9, where he continues the theme of 45, where he says, I am God and there is no one like me. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose, bule, same word used in Hebrews 6.17, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now that's the New American Standard Version of that. But the Hebrew and Greek word order is something I'm going to, conti I'm going to contain in our written version of this. It exegeted, it looks sort of different. It says declaring, and that is a word for announcing. And you'll see that Greek word in your written version of this. Declaring from the beginning, the end. And I have both the Hebrew and the Greek words for this in this exegesis. And then, thirdly, he says, the end before. And from ancient times, things to come or the things, plural, of my purpose. And then, sixthly, in that passage, he says, things that I will accomplish. And he uses similar language as he does in Hebrews. Saying, my counsel, plan, purpose. And there he uses all of my counsel, all of my counsel. Very emphatically in the Greek here, the Greek text looks like this, pasa, which means all, the, the totality of my will or counsel. Pasa, mu, my, and then he, bule. Bule is a word that's used in Hebrews 6.17. Here in Isaiah 46.10, and it's used in Ephesians 1.11. Boule is a word that defines the resolution or the determination, the unchanging determination. I like to call it the unstoppable resolution of God's will. 
And so that word, boule, is perfectly in line with our word amatathaton because amatathaton means unchangeable, inalterable, something you cannot change or even challenge. And boule means his determined resolution. So God is as emphatic as you can get here. He condescends to swear by himself because there's nobody else greater than him to swear by. He doubles up the meaning of multiply and multiply and bless and bless. He adds the word bule, which means the unstoppable determination of my will. Your sins can't stop it. My sins can't stop it. Historical evils can't stop it. The worst kinds of dictators and mass murderers in history can't stop it. Marx can't stop it. Darwin can't stop it. Science can't stop it with its constant confusion. God's purpose stands. And so he says as emphatically as you can get, my purpose, plan, intention, resolve. And again, you can see the same word in Ephesians 1.11 and Hebrews 6.17. Ephesians 1.11 in connection with the summary of everything in Christ in the heavens and earth. And Hebrews 6.17 as the immutability of his purpose. He said, I will accomplish all my unstoppable determination and purpose. My good pleasure there is in the modern Greek text, interestingly, it's another word for will called thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A. And that word is also used in Ephesians 1.11. And Ephesians 1.9, which speaks of the mystery of God's will. So this key word, hey, boule, that's used in the Greek text of this verse, Isaiah 46.10, is also found in Ephesians 1.11. I urge you to study that on your own. And Hebrews 6.17. In the context of, Hebrew, of Ephesians 1.11 is Ephesians 1.9-10, which speaks of the mystery of God's will, thelema, the mystery of of his will, the word that's also found in the modern Greek translation of Isaiah 46.10, Thelema, where he says, and I will accomplish as many things as I resolve to do. Modern Greek actually says this, I will accomplish all my will. Now that says a lot when you know that God's will is salvation of all humanity. This is the will of our God and Savior, says 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 that all people would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth there is the same as the knowledge of the Son of God in Ephesians 4.13 in the phrase, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. When the Son of God appears, the whole of the human race will come to the unity of the faith. Those who have expressed faith in their time on earth will be have their faith approved according to 1 Peter 1.7 and all of Hebrews 11. And those who never believed during the course of their life will have their unbelief reproved, be embarrassed for a little bit, and then have that unbelief yield to faith. Like Thomas, whom Jesus said, stop being an unbeliever, but be a believer. You've seen now, so believe. Quit being an unbeliever. That's what's going to happen to billions of people when he appears. 
But I'd rather be on the side that believed and have my faith approved at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. I think you would too. That's why I'm teaching. I'm teaching this for the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge of God. I'm teaching this so that God can convey through these messages the certainty, the certitude, the absolute assurance to your soul that God's purpose will be fulfilled, his universal and his eternal salvation so that you can be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that work of the Lord is primarily effective prayer. For the effectual prayer of a righteous person avails much. In one prayer by Elijah, a three and a half year drought ended and rain came. That's effective prayer. A pandemic can end. An unhealthy situation in a nation can be over. An unhealthy political situation, a devastating social degeneration, those things can be overturned by effectual prayer. But effectual prayer is only made by people with the assurance of this hoped-for purpose of God. That's why I'm here. Otherwise, I wouldn't, why would I even be on this earth? There'd be no reason well, there'd be a few other substitute reasons, but they wouldn't be the real reason. So in closing, as we previously noted, the all there is not just the church, but all of humankind whom God has willed to save. In the plane of existence above the corporeal and temporal planes, God has already done this. It's already done. God is already present to your future. And those who have passed out of this life that you love and dearly cherished while they were here, they're already in your future, and they're already with you in their future. Try to figure that one out. You can't. You'd have to know the eternal God. God is all about wanting to make known the immutability of his purpose to the heirs of his promise of eternal life. That's you. That's me. He wants you to have this absolute per assurance. In human terms, as I said before, that means a lot to God. What means a lot to God? What means a lot to God is his beloved son, and you're in him. What means a lot to God is that you would pass through this earth, not in the uncertainty and the confusion that's around us, and tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but that you would have a certitude which becomes an anchor for the soul, a stabilizer for your soul, for your life, for your living, so that you can be a refuge to others who are lost and confused, frustrated and desperate. And there's a whole lot of them today. Now, that's why he interposed with a divine oath when he promised to bless and multiply Abraham with an unimaginably vast and everlasting progeny. And as we'll see, that's also why he backed his oracle to Jesus. This is where this is going. It's phenomenal. That's also why he backed his oracle to Jesus. You're a priest forever like Melchizedek. He didn't just say you're a priest forever like Melchizedek. He said, I swear an oath, you're a priest forever like Melchizedek. The oath fortified promise to Abraham of an immutable and an innumerable progeny. And the oath-fortified oracle to Jesus as the archpriest together is a promise that all of humanity will be summed up in one 
single inclusive representative, our great archpriest. That's the point of this little passage. I haven't read that in a commentary. I've read seven commentaries on it, but I haven't read what I'm telling you now in commentaries. These are what we call the illative sense or inferences drawn by the Holy Spirit from reading seven commentaries and exegeting the Greek text. And so the all-saving will of God was not accomplished without blood. And that's why I say that he signs his promises with his own name in his own blood. In the center of the central section of Hebrews, we see this manifested. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. Again, this morning, as, early, as recent as this morning, I retranslated this text. Now the Messiah has appeared. Archpriest of the good things that have come. These are the things that God has resolved to accomplish according to Isaiah 46.10. The Messiah has appeared, archpriest of the good things to come through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is, he passed through the first tent or the first part of the tabernacle in heaven into the holiest place of all. And it says he did so in a tent that's not made with hands, that's not of this creation, that's above the corporeal and temporal planes of existence. In verse 12, he entered once and for all into the holy of holies, not by the blood of he goats and young bulls, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now we've already seen that this redemption is not only eternal or age abiding, it's also universal. As we've just seen that Jesus has become the source not only of eternal but of universal salvation in Hebrews 5.9. It is by his own blood. And Acts 20.28 20, is very bold to say that's the blood of God. God's own blood. And that's why I said that God's promise and God's oath has been signed in his own blood. For the blood of his son is called the blood of his own, the father's own. Let's close by placing all of this in the context of our present exegesis of Hebrews 6, 16 and 17. So far, this is what we got. Now, men customarily swear oaths by something greater than themselves. And for them, the oath for confirmation is the end of all contradiction. Can't say anything against it. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose, to amatathaton tes bules autu, his unchangeable purpose, even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he interposed with an oath. And that's where we're going the next time too. So Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity. And you've multiplied these now to equal 164 opportunities to look into Hebrews, increment upon increment, little by little, here a little, there a little, so that we can come to a full assurance of hope and to hold on to that hope until the moment of our death and to have that hope and the faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, commended and approved gloriously at the appearance of your son, Jesus Christ. We look to him. And we look forward to his appearance. In Jesus' name, amen.